I'm Pat Michaels, the author of uh, Climate of Extremes. And uh, as a matter of, of uh, who I am, I'm... Oh, is this on? Ah, okay, good. I'm a professor of environmental sciences at the University of Virginia since 1979. Uh, Virginia State climatologist from 1980 through 2007. And uh, I have been here at Cato as first an adjunct scholar and then a half-time person and a full-time person beginning as an adjunct in 1990. Uh, I've authored a number of books on this subject, and this is my latest one, and I hope you'll like it. Now, why did I call this the climate of extremes? Very simple. In Washington, as you know, we polarize issues. In the issue of global warming, it seems either you are on the talk show line in the afternoon and you say there is no such thing as climate change, or you say it's the end of the world. And this applies to both sides of the issue. I'd like to talk about how we the, the facts appear to not matter. Things go unchallenged in the climate of extremes. People accept the strangest things without really fact-checking. And I'd like to begin on May 22, 2007, The Larry King Show. Uh, this is one exchange that lasted only a mere few minutes, uh, if we could. There we go. Larry King Live. Uh, on 2007, one exchange that lasted only a mere few minutes contained an incredible number of unfactual statements in it. And it's between the vice president, an unidentified woman calls and says, Vice President Gore, what issues caused by climate change globally are likely to affect the United States in the next 10 years? Vice President responds, the direct impacts on the U.S. have already begun. Today, 49% of America is in conditions of drought or near drought. So the implication is that global warming is increasing drought in the United States. Fine. This statement went completely unchallenged. How hard is it to check? It turns out it's six mouse clicks away. On the upper uh, graph here is the percent of the United States experiencing drought conditions. This is something called the Palmer Drought Severity Index. It's a very, very common metric of climate uh, that's been used for literally a half a century. Uh, and on the bottom are the northern hemisphere temperature departures from average from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, of which, by the way, I am a member and a rather active one. Uh, what you see here, if you look on the y-axis, here's the 49% that Gore was talking about. Now, is there any relationship between this and global warming? You don't have to waste your time running Excel on this because the correlation is obviously zero. Simple fact, not checked. Or we could look at longer-term climate history of the Pacific Southwest, which is one of the places we really care about drought. The Energy Secretary, Mr. Sue, who is, has a Nobel Prize in particle physics, which really is somewhat not related to climatology, uh, said recently that global warming will destroy agriculture in California and cause the loss of the major cities in California. This is absurd. But... Uh, the reason he said that is because of stories about major drought in the Pacific Southwest and the Colorado River system. And in fact, if we take a look at the history of Colorado River stream flow as measured by tree rings and other kinds of fossils, uh, this is by Dave Miko in 2007. Here's the, uh, the more recent drought, and you can see that it is nothing compared to what we have seen. That's lowest in the current drought. Nothing compared to what we saw here uh, in the 12th century. This thing lasted 60 years. So to say that there's any signal of warming in this record, which would begin somewhere around 1900, is absurd. Again, we have extremely wet conditions in the early part of the 20th century, which, by the way, resulted in the migration of people to California as a green paradise. I'll show you that in a second. And then it dried, and then it got wetter. In fact, let's segue to California. We have fires in California, Mr. Gore said in his response. Senator Reid chimed in, in a little bit later, by the way, not in the show. One reason we have the fires in California is global warming. Let me tell you about forest fires and range fires in California. They occur because it rains a lot 
in a previous winter. Cal have, you've all been to California. By the time April 1st rolls around in Southern California, there's not a cloud in the sky, except for the morning fog if the marine layer is thick. And it does not rain until next October or next December, if you're lucky. And so it dries out every year to the point that normally you can support decent fires. But the fires become enhanced if the previous winter or the winter before that was very wet. The reason they become wet is because of El Nino. That causes excessive rain in Southern California. So one could have checked Gore's statement to see if indeed the frequency of rainy winters in California has been increasing. This is about five miles clicks away from the United States National Climatic Data Center. This is the Southern California December-March rainfall. And you can see a very interesting thing. First of all, most winters are actually pretty dry, around 10 inches. And you can see the El Ninos poking above the mean here, where uh, uh, you either have a very dry winter or a very wet winter. And it's those that predispose Southern California to massive fires. This period here, by the way, of the current era obviously pales in comparison to the early 20th century when California was sold as a green paradise, as was Arizona, et cetera. And that began or continued some of the great out-migration to California, and it was a green paradise. Of course, in the summer, it exploded, but nobody lived there. Eventually, they moved in there and paid the price. Gore, in response to the 10-year question, this is, this is a real whopper. You know, even a one-meter sea level rise, even a three-foot increase in sea level would cause millions of climate refugees. That's in response to a 10-year question. Let's check the sea level rise forecast from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is the one, these are the 100-year projections. This is A1B, which is called the mid-range emissions scenario. Uh, and if we take a look at the increases in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we are pretty much running on the A1B scenario. Uh, anyway, the median value here is about three-tenths of a meter, but that's for 100 years. Let's turn it into English units. You have to divide by 10 to get to 10 years. The median value is 1.26 inches. It got away with three feet on the Larry King show. We have a very serious threat of losing enough soil moisture in a hotter world that agriculture here in the United States would be greatly affected. This would be, I presume, in the next 10 years. Well, in fact, the planet has been warming, and you might want to take a look at agriculture in the United States with respect to warming. This is the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's temperature history for the, northern, or for the world. The, we have two periods of warming here, one in the early 20th century, which couldn't have anything to do with carbon dioxide because we hadn't put enough in the air then this period where it sort of cools a little bit, and then from here on out uh, where we see warming beginning in 1977, a very interesting period uh, beginning in 1998 where it doesn't warm, which I'll talk about in a second. But let's compare this to wheat yields and corn yields. Corn yields have quintupled in the United States. As the planet warmed to degrees Celsius, they quintupled. You don't see you know, Paul Ehrlich right around here predicted they would begin to crash immediately. The Club of Rome right around here predicted they would begin to crash immediately, and they have continued at the exact same rate of increase that was established by the time people were talking about the end of the world. The climate of extremes began a long time ago, didn't it? And uh, take a look here at wheat yields. You see wheat, which is much more drought tolerant than corn, uh, shows an increase uh, of about 100% over the course of the years. Uh, to take a look at agriculture just in general, let's get a little closer to home. This is Augusta County, Virginia, where I used to live. Uh, the mean an annual average temperature is 53 degrees. Annual precip, 38 inches. Here is Sussex County in southeastern Virginia at 5 degrees warmer and about 20% more precipitation, and the corn yields are exactly the same. Why? Because people adapt. They adapt their practices. What's different between the temperature warming 5 degrees or a farmer moving from Suffolk County to Augusta County? The thing is, the answer is absolutely nothing. So people adapt to very large changes. Well, that's the climate of extremes. Now, I'd like to ask a very, very interesting question in this climate. I'm going to ask you the question, have the global warming climate models failed? And uh, this is touched on in the book. I want to expand on that. Uh, when we talk about the effects of global warming, like Mr. Gore was talking about in 10 years, 
We start with changes in the atmosphere, meaning changes in the carbon dioxide concentration. We put them into climate models, and then we put these into usually economic impact models for agriculture or energy or whatever we might want to do. There are many of these models. I'm going to take a look at 21 of the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Models. I'm going to look at the mid-range emission scenario, and I'm going, to, I'm going to run these things for thousands of iterations. They give you different answers each time you run them because of round-off errors, because of very strange things. They have El Ninos put in as random spots. They have cold La Ninas. So you, get, you can get, by running them for a very long period of time, the actual frequency distribution of warming trends that comes out of these models. And then you could make a statistical test, couldn't you? You could find out if the observed warming trends, say for five years, six years, on out to 15 years back, or even 20 years back, are running at within the statistical confidence limits of these models. And the, the, each one of these colored lines, by the way, is a computer model. They go up and down. This is uh, an El Nino in this model. That's a La Nina, which is colder in that model. They don't have volcanoes in them, but we'll take care of that in a second. And the average of all these is pretty much close to a straight line, which is predicted by greenhouse effect theory, that the change in carbon dioxide is exponential. The response to carbon dioxide is logarithmic. And I guess we've spent $10 billion proving that if you add an exponent and a logarithm, you get a straight line, which is something anybody in pre-calculus will do also. Anyway, this is a close-up of the behavior of the models in the near term. We are right here. Uh, so we've gone through half of this, basically a little less than half of this 2000 to 2020 period. And uh, you can see that, in fact, the changes models are very linear, constant rates of warming. And this is the warming since the beginning of the second warming of the 20th century, beginning around 1977. And in fact, if you fit a straight line to it, that's the best statistical fit to the data. Uh, you could fit uh, a logarithm, but it won't explain as much variance. You could fit an exponent. Any second-order fit does not fit as well as a simple first-order straight line. So huh, we've got a test on our hands, don't we? The models predict a constant rate of warming. And we've observed a constant rate of warming. That allows us to compare apples and apples in a statistical test. Now, bear with me on this. This is the 95% confidence range for the computer models for iterations of different lengths of time, five years, six years. You notice that some of these models predict cooling trends for five-year periods in their 95% confidence range. This is integrated over all the models. Why? Because they might start with a La Nina, which is a cold event in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, but eventually, they home in on this mean warming trend of about 0.2 some odd degrees C per decade. And here are the observed temperature trends for the last five years, six years, seven years, and out to the last 15 years. This is the 95% confidence interval. So 95% of the model runs are within here. 2.5%, uh, uh, if, we're, if we're below here, we are at 2.5% of the data on the cold side or 2.5% on the warm side. And guess what? It's very obvious that we are following the line of failure. If the model doesn't work at the 0.05 level or the 0.025 level on one side, scientists say you must reject the hypotheses created by these models. And so does law in many ways. Dalbert versus Merrill Dow, a very important case, held that an award could not be given in a lawsuit where the testimony for the science was on science that did not meet the normal criteria for statistical significance. Ah, this may have very interesting ramifications, very interesting ramifications, if indeed Congress does not pass a cap-and-trade and EPA instead chooses to regulate. This could be a lot of fun. Now, we could do this out for 20 years. You know, you might pick on me and say, oh, Michaels, you picked the last 15 years. That begins in uh, 2000, let's see, 1990, 1993, somewhere around here. And, you know, maybe there's something funny about that. So let's go all the way back to 1988 and do all the way out to the last 20 years. And what you see, here's the same trumpet. These are five-year trends. This is on out to 20. Well, in, two, in, in 1991, a big volcano blew off. Mount Pinatubo volcano. The computer models do not have volcanoes in them. Otherwise, they'd blow up. So uh, that's a joke. So I can take out the effect of 
Mount Pinatubo. It's a very easy thing to do. Published a paper on that with my colleague Chip Knappenberger a couple years ago, a few years ago. Anyway, and you see now on out 15 to 20 years, it's very clear that the models are falling beneath the 95% confidence level or on both sides or the 97.5 confidence level on the cold side. This is failure. The A1B models are failing. This is the dirty secret. And the temperature record I'm using here for comparison happens to be the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's most cited temperature record, the record from the University of East Anglia. And uh, it's, in fact, the one that they relied upon solely for most of their publications. Another problem is this. This was published by Noel Keneally's side in Nature a year ago. Uh, it was a paper on the distribution of sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic and in the tropical Pacific. And Keneally's side concluded that it's not likely to warm for another few years. More recently, another paper just came out a couple weeks ago where somebody said, uh, I forget who it was from University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, that uh, this could run out for 30 years. But therefore, we need to do something now. Excuse me, but I want to ask you a question. Taking a look at the, each one of these individual models, does anybody here see a 15-year period in which there's no net warming? In any one of these models? No. And by the way, here's a cooling in, in one of these down here. You can see it starts with a La Nina and five-year five interval. No. All of them show warming trends. So it's very, very clear that what's happening is outside of the range, the st statistically confident range of our computer models. Ah. Other misconceptions in the climate of fear. Unchallenged assumptions. This one is a whopper. Atmospheric methane. That's the second most important greenhouse gas that we put in. And it has generally thought to, to result from four sources. One, bovine flatulence. You think that's funny. Uh, uh, but the New Zealand government is spending an incredible amount of money to try and get sheep that produce less methane because New Zealand has an awful lot of sheep. Uh, and there is a lot of pressure to reduce emissions in a cabin trade program or something like that down there. While bovine flatulence is not going down and there are an increasing number of bovines. Rice paddy agriculture, the last I heard, more people are eating more food. Coal mining. Well, that's not going down. People might think it is, but it's not. And there's a lot of methane that's released at the face where you, you mine the coal down there. Or leaky pipes. Uh, it was thought it, that the Soviet Union's pipes were so, natural gas pipes were so leaky and meth that methane was, uh, uh, was leaking into the atmosphere. But that's a long time ago, so we've got to end that. Now, let's take a look at the assumptions for, the, for methane in the atmosphere. This is from the United Nations, again, their A1B, mid-range scenario, and it actually goes backwards as well as forwards. You can see here around 1970, what do you see? It starts at about 1,500 parts per billion in the atmosphere, and it keeps on going up, 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 up till 2050 at the same rate. This is what's used today in the, the, the latest compendium by the IPCC. Here are the concentrations. Uh, of methane in the atmosphere while they were being predicted to increase at the same rate. The concentration was beginning to drop. So that finally, in recent years, there are actually some years in which the concentration in the atmosphere has gone negative. And yet this wasn't even, nobody challenged this in the IPCC process. I was a reviewer. I wrote, hey, look at these numbers. No change. So that's the climate of extremes that's just not in public discourse. It's clearly in the scientific discourse. Uh, well, you know, this is Cato, and I would be foolhardy if I said this. But in fact, there is an assumption that people are. That as places warm, as our cities warm, people will just slowly fry and die, that there will not be adaptation. The United Nations wrote that by the year 2020, the death rate in cities in North America, that's here, from heat-related deaths in heat waves will increase several fold. Now, obviously, that's been doing, the temperature's been going up, so let's take a look. The cities provide us a wonderful natural laboratory. But before we do that, let's take a look at the heat wave of the summer of 2003 in Europe, which we all know was caused by global warming. This is the integrated atmospheric temperature in the lower atmosphere 
This was published by Chase et al., T.N. Chase, in 2006. Talk about it in my book. This is the best way we measure temperature. And you can see, if you look at the temperature departures from normal, that most of the world is kind of this color right here for the summer of 2003. In other words, it was a cool summer. Embedded in this cool summer is this tiny bubble of hot, very, very hot air, which just happened to be centered over Europe. If you take a look at other summers, particularly El Nino summers, you'll see this entire map might be a little bit orange or have an awful lot of orange on it. This was not an unusual summer at all, and it's very, very hard to relate an anomaly of that scale, that small, to say it was caused by global warming. But nonetheless, we might as well. And we could make a computer model to predict how many deaths that would produce. Uh, this is from Foulier et al. in 2008. 2003, I mean, in 2003, the solid line is the observed mortality. Whoops. Uh, solid line is the observed mortality. And the dashed line is a standard computer model for mortality uh, in France. And you can see that the observed deaths dramatically exceeded those from the computer about uh, 19 or 20 per 100,000 people with the computer predicting about 15 per 100,000 people. This is a, a disaster of major proportion. But the fact is that people aren't stupid and that they do adapt. Down here is the heat wave of 2006 in France, which I bet you didn't hear about. Nobody heard about it. But in fact, it was just about as warm as 2003. People, not enough people died to make headlines. Here's the predicted warming. You can see the predicted warming in 2006 is just about the same as the predicted warming in 2003. Our predicted number of deaths, I'm sorry. And here uh, are the observed number of deaths in 2003. What happened? People adapted. And they do it worldwide. They've been doing it in the United States. Uh, we, in, in our cities, heat-related death has been declining for decades. And in fact, the more frequent heat waves are in our cities, the fewer people die. You know, we hear that it's the old and it's the infirm that die in a city in, 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 in a heat wave. Well, the places where there are the least heat-related deaths in the United States, the cities are Tampa and Phoenix. These are cities with the oldest age distribution in the country. There is one city in the United States where heat-related deaths are going up. That's Seattle. It has the youngest age distribution amongst the population of cities that we looked at, but it also has the coldest summers. So it's very clear. Where heat, relate, where heat excursions are frequent, people are adapted, and there's not very much mortality. And where they are infrequent, they will begin to adapt. They will learn to adapt. They did in France. France, so many people died in 2003 because of lack of air conditioning. It was thought to be an American invention. We don't want this artificial air. You should see what air conditioner sales did between 2003 and 2006 in France. And the political process adapted. Uh, shelters were set up where you could go if it was hot that had this wonder called air conditioning. And mortality dropped dramatically. We saw the same thing in Chicago. The great heat wave of the mid-1990s resulted in 700 excess deaths in one weekend. A similar heat wave took place a few years later, and the excess death total was minimal. The city adapted. Nobody, elected officials do not do well when bodies are piling up in the street when it gets hot. So adaptation is what occurs with respect to global warming. But back to the climate of extremes. I have two more examples of simply not checking the facts. These two are shocking to me and will demonstrate the bipartisan nature of this particular climate of extremes. Uh, my favor here favorite here is something called Warming Island. Now, you may remember this story from a couple of years ago. This is John Collins Rudolph writing in the New York Times, January 16, 2007. A peninsula long thought to be a part of Greenland's mainland turned out to be an island when a glacier retreated. The ominous implications were not lost on Dennis Schmidt, who says he hopes the island he discovered in Greenland will become an international symbol of the effects of climate change. Mr. Schmidt, who speaks Inuit, provisionally named the island Ununartogakwekwertog, the Warming Island. And it's a cult. Go Google Warming Island to see how many hits you get on this subject. In fact, here's Warming Island. 
it's very interesting. It's got an interesting shape. This is Landsat image from 1985, and you can see it's connected to the rest of Greenland. By 2002, the ice bridge is becoming less and less, and by 2005, in fact, it opens up and reveals itself to be an island. Here's a current, relatively current map of Greenland showing what people thought. Uh, this is a place called Carlsbad Fjord. And you notice these three, this three-fingered protuberance off the peninsula here uh, on the south side. This map is flipped over 90 degrees for Carlsbad Fjord. And this was presumed to be a part of the mainland. Now, every scientist who's studied Greenland knows that it was warmer or as warm for an integrated period much longer than the current time in the early and mid-20th century. And it just turns out that there's a weather station, Angmasalik, which is about 50 nautical miles away from Warming Island. It's not very far at all. It doesn't take that many clicks to get to this data either. It takes a few more than it does to get to the U.S. data, but the Danish Meteorological Institute has a very, very nice set of weather records around Greenland. The integrated warming for the last 10 years around Warming Island would average somewhere around here, and I would submit that that's not much different than what you see here uh, from the mid-1920s to the mid-1960s. What fact-checking editor would not ask, hey, has that been this warm in the past? Or B, is it really true that this thing has not been uncovered for millennia or something going back into the last ice age? In a climate of extremes, you don't bother. More importantly, Apparently, no scientist chimes in and says, hey, wait a minute, it was warmer back in the early 20th century. Uh, you better check on that before you go with this story. Well, how long did it take my assistant to find this book? Not very long. Published by a fellow, but written by a guy by the name of Ernst Hoffer in 1957 with the intriguing title of Arctic Riviera. And it was a book talking about how warm it is in eastern Greenland. He did aerial photography. He assisted the expeditionary and, and, and uh, um, scientific crews that would go out to Greenland. You know, it's a lot cheaper to go to Greenland than it is to Antarctica. You still see a lot of ice, and it's real thick, and you can do a lot of scientific work uh, in Greenland. Well, anyway, uh, so Arctic Riviera contained a map, which I would like to show to you. Here's northeast Greenland. If you read closely, that's Carlsbad Fjord. And if you look closely, oh my god, there's the Three-Fingered Island, a book published in 1957. Nobody bothered to check on this. And it was covered not in the New York Times print edition, when this map was uncovered by my assistant, Chip Knappenberger, but in a blog. And Mr. Schmidt's response was, his map has to be wrong. Well, I haven't seen another map yet. So things that we say are true go unquestioned in this climate. And like I said, it's not just one party. I'd like to close with the red, red Koya Pigatoric comes Bob, Bob, bobbing along. Robins in the Arctic, you've all heard this. Look, Senator John McCain, 2004, the Inuit language for 10,000 years, never had a word for robin, and now there are robins all over their villages. The BBC program on climate change. Title, no word for robin, climate change in the Canadian Arctic. Okay, where are the fact checkers on this one? Come on, there are staffers over here on the Hill that had to have had a computer which would be connected to the Library of Congress. There are fact-checkers at the BBC who could connect with the British Museum or whatever. 1953. The journal Arctic, volume 6, pages 35 to 43, by L. Irving, The Naming of Birds by the Mammoth Eskimo. Robin equals Koya Yes. 
Nobody even bothered to check. Or V. Stephenson, 1913. Uh, it's a great book, by the way. You ought to take a look at it sometime. This guy went and lived up there. My Life Among the Eskimo, Cree Koyatuyak, which sounds an awful lot like that. <clears throat> That's Mackenzie Eskimo, meaning uh, Eastern Canada and Western Greenland, or Alaskan Eskimo, Shabwak. And ironically, the 2004 quote by McCain was related to a trip to Alaska. So there you have it. We have a book detailing this, and we discuss why it happened. That's beyond, or I'll, I'll talk about it in the Q&A if you want. Uh, there are several reasons for it, but we live in the climate of extremes. Be very careful when you hear one of the following. There's no such thing as global warming, or two, it's the end of the world, and here's why. Usually the facts have not been checked, the truth lies somewhere in between, and our computer models are clearly overestimating the amount of warming that's occurring, I think that's going to have enormous policy implications. Now what I'd like to do is uh, give this podium over to my colleague, Dave Legates, whom I've worked with for years and years and years and years, and you're going to find out that we don't agree on everything. We agree on some things. Uh, he's an associate professor uh, of climatology at the University of Delaware. Uh, and also in the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Scientists. He's been the Delaware State Climatologist from 2002 to the present. Uh, his governor enjoined him against speaking out on climate change as state climatologist, so I'm sure that he'll have nothing to say about climate change as state climatologist. Uh, as you know, Governor Kane asked me uh, not to do the same, which is why I will be full-time at Cato beginning on July 1. Um, <clears throat> At least I can speak freely. And uh, he is also the director of one of the world's most unique uh, micro and mesometeorological networks, the Delaware uh, Environmental Observing System, in which people have learned a tremendous amount about fine-scale um, distribution of climate within a small city, within a large city, uh, from farm to farm. This is the real high-tech stuff. Dave is one of the best people in the world at this. Uh, he holds his BA, MA, and PhD from Delaware, but he left there to go to University of Oklahoma for nine and a half years uh, in Delaware, which is the only institution, by the way, in the United States that actually gives a PhD in climatology. I uh, wanted him back at that program, and that's why he is there now. David, your commentary. Thank you very much. Um, I must say, I've never done one of these before. And uh, chances are, after today's over, I may never do one again, or may never be asked to do one again, I should say. But uh, I have very much my pleasure to be able to review this book and to provide some discussion on it. Um, my thought was, first of all, I, uh, the first thing I did, as most people do, is turn to the back of the book and try to figure out uh, where you've been cited. And I guess I was a little surprised uh, to find that I was only cited in two places. And Pat found no reason to cite any of my research. Thanks, Pat. Um, but he actually, they, he and Bob both found a need to talk about the state climatologist. And of course, one of the issues regarding the state climatologist is that uh, Pat and I signed on to this uh, Amasecuri brief with the US EPA regarding the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You may be familiar with that. Um, well, it turned out, as we were working on the US EPA side, the state of Delaware and the governor of the state of Delaware joined the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And so that put me in an odd situation of being on one side of the coin relative to the other. And so in particular, uh, what happened was not something initiated by the governor. In fact, I know in Pat's case and in George Taylor in Oregon's case, uh, your governors eventually said cease and desist and get lost. Uh, it was not quite that way. And I want to sort of clear that up uh, in the book, too, in that uh, my situation is a little bit different. You'll notice uh, here it says I'm associate professor of climatology and director of the Center for Climatic Research at the University of Delaware in Newark. Uh, I also serve as a Delaware State climatologist. It's that second phrase that got the news journal, which is the Gannett newspaper in Wilmington, a little bit sideways. 
And so they wrote an article, eventually an editorial, which said that I should be fired as state climatologist and implying, too, that I should be fired as, uh, as a university faculty member because, after all, that is a state employee, and we can't have a state employee disagreeing with the governor. And to make a long story short, um, I got into a discussion, and, in fact, the governor's office issued a letter, in part at my request, and she quoted, recent media coverage of events associated with the subject of climate change has generated some confusion as to the role of the state climatologist. And she instructed me that when I speak on climate change issues to make it clear that I'm not speaking as the state climatologist, which I know you haven't. Of course, the News Journal reported this as that Minner said that reports of my work with private groups and privately backed publications disputing climate change had apparently generated some confusion. This is, I think, part of the climate of extreme in that things that aren't said are reported as if they are. And so now everybody thinks the governor told me, uh, in one case it was reported I can't speak on climate issues, which makes you wonder if the state climatologist can't speak on climate issues, what am I supposed to speak on, politics? <laughs> but any event, that governor's gone. There's a new governor in. Uh, I'm not sure how we'll get along with him, but we'll see. But I do want to point out, uh, this is the other, uh, the Chemical Bureau brief of climate scientists on the other side. You'll notice one of them is James Hansen. I'll be there. He is James Hansen. And in particular, he lists himself as head of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. And in particular, you'll notice that nobody called him out for disagreeing with the president. Uh, and if they had, I'm sure there would have been an uproar. So I will leave you with this disclaimer as we start. I do not represent any of the branches of government for the state of Delaware, nor do I speak for the governor or any other state agency. I started off with the climate of extremes, and I thought about what does the book mean, what is the book going to be about? What are the climate of extremes? And I came up with four possibilities. One is it could be a climatology of extreme weather events. I was hoping that wouldn't be the only answer because then it's a little more than a textbook, and certainly that's not something you'd be interested in, and certainly I've seen enough textbooks in my day. Uh, it could also be about the political climate surrounding extreme weather events. After all, extreme weather events are where the action is. It's where people lose their houses. It's where people lose their homes. It's where people lose their lives. It's not the mean field that destroys things. It's the extremes. And so could it be the political climate surrounding that? On the other hand, could it be the climatology of extreme behavior by climate scientists? Um, obviously, we've seen a lot of that going on. Or finally, could it have been the political climate of extreme behavior by climate scientists acting in the political realm? And I'm pleased to report that, in fact, I think the book in all four cases does that. Yes, 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 yes. It's about all of the above. And I don't think it's overburdening on the climatology end of things. That is, there are certain things, obviously, that have to be done in a technical nature. But in particular, it is not a textbook of climatology. So I'm at least glad to see that the first one is a low-level yes. It gets just as much as it needs to do. Now, I'm going to start with the epigraph, and I know I've only been given 15 minutes, and it's scary if, all I'm going to, if the first thing I'm going to do is pick on the epigraph. But I think this is important. Here's a quote by Philip Jones in a letter he wrote back to Warwick Hughes. Warwick Hughes had asked him about his global, global air temperature climatology. How do you get the numbers? What goes into it? And Jones's quote is, we have 25 years or so invested in the work. Why should I make the data available to you when your aim is to try and find something wrong with it? Sounds very much unscientific, and I know what people are going to say is that Michaels and Balling essentially have cherry-picked this, that the science is going to be just those articles that agree with them, ignoring the thousands of referee journal articles that say something different. This probably was Phil Jones caught on a week afternoon. He was probably upset with war cues and just shot something off quickly, and now everybody cites it. Well, if you go back to the SAR second assessment report, I had essentially the same deal with Ben Sanner. And this, if you remember the quote, the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on the climate. A number of us tried to look at why that quote came in, and he gave some references to it. It was very political. Uh, he received essentially support from AMS and the American Meteorological Society, the American Geophysical Union for it. But nevertheless, the idea was, in this case, that the balance of evidence suggests a human discernible influence on climate, and that he had provided uh, research to sort of argue that, yes, in fact, that's what happens. Well, Wigley, in an, art in an article, uh, I should say in a letter written to the um, 
proposing body that we did, that Bob Davis and I from Virginia had done some research with that proved that this research was really bogus, that in a sense you could start with two fields that are exactly the same and go in opposite directions. Well, in reality, what happens is when Wigley wrote a letter saying, no, in fact, that didn't happen. So the board said, well, why don't you get the data from Santer and test to see if that has occurred. And we approached Santer, and the official line I got from a friend of his was, he's gotten the data from different sources that he's promised not to redistribute it. But the underlying factor, the friend said, but the real reason was he doesn't trust you with the data. So what I want to point out is in the book, there's lots of stories, there's lots of events. It's not that these are the only things that ever happen. There's a number of these that go on, and a number of them that could have been included in the book. And if they had, the book would have probably run to several volumes, and that was obviously not desirable either. The book starts out, chapter one, a global warming science primer. I was hoping that wasn't going to be an attempt to make you a climate scientist, and it isn't. It's essentially bringing you up to speed on what is going on in the climate world. If you haven't been paying attention since the last book, or if you haven't been paying attention at all, at least it brings you up to date on what's taking place on global air temperature trends, as we've seen changes in model observations and things such as that. The second chapter is our changing climate history. One of the things I deal with is data. One of the things we recognize is that the data are inherently problematic. We would like to think that the data have been measured and come equipped with perfect observations. They aren't. And the book is very important in demonstrating the differences between first-order weather stations, cooperative networks, balloon resolutions, satellite-based temperatures, what that all means. Third chapter is a fairly big chapter on hurricane warning, and you can sort of guess as to why that's there. There's been a lot of interest in hurricanes. There's been a lot of discussion. There's been a lot of politics, particularly after Katrina, particularly after the 2005 and, again, the active 2006 season. There's been a lot of discussion that came up about it, and the book, I think, sums that up very nicely. Also, I point out that the book does go back in time. If you'll notice from one of the chapters, there's 270 years of hurricane history, then 800 years, and then 5,000 years. There's a lot of people looking at what we call paleotempestology, or which is a fancy word of looking historical events, of ext historical extreme events. Chapter four, sea level rise in the great unfreezing world. You can see there's lots of subheadings under that. That's also a very big chapter, and I think that's done very well as uh, well. And I want to point out why chapter three and four, I think, are so big. Delaware, we're, of course, interested in it. And here you can see one of the things that my own college-to-be uh, essentially has produced. This is what Delaware is going to look like ultimately in 2100. We are just a small archipelago of islands at that point. Um, this is obviously a ridiculously extreme scenario, but nevertheless, scientists even portray it as being correct. The news journal paper, what ran this, for example, Delaware shoreline, if sea level rises two feet. Now, think for a moment, two feet. What is the normal tidal range of Delaware? It's six feet. So at high tide, this should be the area that's inundated because sea level rise of two feet would be less than the tidal range. But nevertheless, what you see they've done is actually measured it for 20 feet, but tried to play it off as two feet. Five, extreme climate, floods, uh, fires, and droughts, looking at the rest of the type of storms. One of the things that's missing in here, I think, is in this discussion of extreme climate are tornadoes. I think of tornadoes because I spent nine and a half years in Oklahoma, and that scares everybody to death out there. Um, but there hasn't been much thrust in tornadoes for a number of reasons, and that's probably why it's best, maybe in this case, left off the table. One of the things the chapter does point to that I want to point out is this Environment America report, when it rains, it pours. I have seen this all over the place, reported time and time again, particularly with respect to the rising frequency of extreme precipitation in the United States. In fact, in Delaware, just before Tom Carper, was our senator, was expected to vote on, I think it was uh, uh, the uh, Lieberman-Warner bill, the idea was Delaware's precipitation is rising by 37 percent. The extreme precipitation, that is, events occurring more than two inches an hour, uh, I'm sorry, two inches a day over the entire period. Well, the interesting thing was we had two articles in the paper, we had a press release, and everybody was up in arms about, gee, 37 percent is a significant rise, and it is. The only problem is when you look at the actual document, you'll find 
it's really not statistically significant. They admit it's not statistically significant, but they've alerted the, American, the Delaware populace, and they've tried to get, or got, I guess, uh, Tom Carper to vote for it, when in fact, even in their own publication, it was not statistically significant. These are the kinds of extremes that we deal with. Climate of death and the climate, death of our climate is chapter six. Uh, death of French, uh, Pat's talked a lot about this here, so I'll skip on that as well. Seven, pervasive bias in climate extremism. Here's where we're starting to get into the politics of it, the peer review, the involvement of professional organizations, the fact that the American Meteorological Society and the fact that the American Geophysical Union both have weighed in. And I remember back at the University of Oklahoma in 89, uh, I think it was Bob Carell gave a talk at OU, and he said this is a, a, a red-letter day for the um, – uh, for climate scientists, climate science everywhere, we're going to get lots of money. Let's not kill the goose that's laying the golden egg. And in particular, I'm afraid that's exactly what we've led towards. Keep funding us. We'll tell you what we want to hear. Uh, one of the interesting things I also want to point out with that is how things change. This is the famous hockey stick graph, and much has been made of it. I'm not going to make too much of it, except something you probably haven't noticed. This is the pre-publication version of the Northern Hemisphere trend. You'll notice the value at 2,000 was 0.3 degrees Celsius. Extend that back across, and you'll notice that 0.3 degrees Celsius was actually exceeded once previously, or twice previously. By the time it came out, it was now up to 0.7, and in this case, what we've done is simply inflated the number at the end so we can now say this is the warmest year of the millennium and the warmest year, uh, 1998, was in fact the warmest year, decade of the millennium. We also noticed over time in various publications this has changed. Here is 2002. You'll see it at 0.3. At 2003, this is up above 0.4. And at 2003, Manna Jones had pushed it all the way to almost 0.6. And now it's up about 0.7 by the time we got to the third assessment report. We published this in 2004 uh, and got away with it because we didn't make a big deal of it. I'm sure if we'd have made a big deal, uh, it would have been picked up. The final chapter is a balancing act, which alludes to a modest proposal. And this is, I think, where I have to disagree with Pat and Bob on this. Um, they asked the question, so what can be done to modify the climate of extremes? And their proposal is to reduce the publication bias to eliminate anonymous peer review. The massive expansion of cyberspace makes that possible. While I agree that we should have a removal of peer review, I think the IPCC report shows that, it do that review doesn't matter. You can make these things available online. It comes down to the editor, it comes down to the author, and it comes down to the reviewers. And if an editor wants to ignore reviews, the editor can do that. The editor can, can, can bend the reviews, even if you make it in the open and allow anybody to comment on any paper you'll still get the same kind of effect taking place. So I don't necessarily think, oh, I think it's a good idea. I don't think it'll solve the problem. I think the issue is that what we really need is some form of ability, like the book does, to keep turning over the stones, to keep saying to the public, yes, this is not the way it is, this is the truth, and keep harping on that over and over again. I'll leave you briefly with what I thought the end should have been, and I don't mean that Pat would have stolen uh, an idea from Dick Lindzen, but I liked it, so I... I'm borrowing it. He says, this is the triangle of alarmism. Scientists make meaningless or ambiguous statements, which in turn allows advocates and the media to translate the statements into alarmist declarations. In turn, politicians respond to the alarm by feeding the scientists more money. I'm afraid we're starting to siphon that off. Instead of that final arrow as going back to the scientists, we should need another area which says politicians respond to alarm by trying to do something. That is even worse, and that's where we are now, is when politicians try to do something on things that they really can't affect, and I'll have, well, they'll affect, they'll have major damages elsewhere, but they won't affect climate, because the idea of climate stabilization is useless, then that's where I feel we're unfortunate. Um, and I'll skip that. Thank you very much. We have about uh, 10 to 15 minutes for Q&A, and uh, we'll be happy. And I'll just uh, choose from the audience here. Uh, you, sir? Yes. My name is Aaron Hurtis. I'm a... Oh, wait for, wait for the mic if you could. Yeah, of course. 
Hi, uh, my name is Aaron Hurtis. I'm a press secretary with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, you're both probably familiar with some of our work. Um, I obviously work with scientists who take a very opposite view of where both of you are coming from. Um, I wanted to pick on something, uh, pick up on something that you said about um, the natural accusation being against your book that you're cherry picking. Um, and I thought I saw a lot of that in the presentation. So I'd be interested in, to you, in your response. You're accusing other scientists in the mainstream media of cherry picking themselves yet you seem to be doing a lot of cherry-picking of individual pieces of research, interviews, et cetera, to anecdotally make your case. Um, and in particular, um, I wanted to focus on your citation of the sea level rise data from the IPCC. Um, I, I hope that you're aware that that only accounted for thermal expansion of the ocean. It ignores the sea level rise that would come from melting glacial ice. Um, so it's something I see a lot of contrarians do. And I would hope that you stop doing that um, and honestly account for how the IPCC presented that sea level rise data, because uh, I thought that it was very misleading. So I'd like your response to that specifically. Also. Sure, absolutely. No, it does not. It does. It does, in fact, allow for the loss of glacial ice. It does not allow for the notion that Greenland would rapidly shed its ice field, which is the the climate crisis du jour. And then in the book. Uh, this is the notion that, that Jim Hansen has popularized, that, that sea level could rise 20 feet by, uh, by the year 2100 uh, because Greenland, the warming of Greenland will uh, um, create a water flow underneath the ice cap that will accelerate its disintegration. This is all well and good, except as we point out in the book, uh, a very large study that is indisputable because of its geographic length shows that in Eurasia, Siberia, Scandinavia, etc., that for millennia, I didn't say 100 years, for millennia, July temperatures were as much as 7 degrees Celsius warmer than what's called modern. This paper is by Glenn McDonald, the chairman of the geography department at UCLA. And what he did is he looked at, at trees that had fallen into the tundra. If a tree falls in the tundra, it's preserved because it's very acidic. And so it can be carbon dated. And you can see that the tree line extended all the way to the Arctic Ocean. Present era, it's about 100 miles south of the Arctic Ocean. In fact, it extended into the Arctic Ocean because the Arctic Ocean was shallower and less extensive because of the large areas of land ice. And we know how warm it has to be in the summer for the trees to be there. Now, having said that, how do you get Eurasia that warm? Well, McDonald said, as everybody knows, if you take a look at a map of the globe from the pole, there's only one gateway where you can get all that warm water into the Arctic Basin, and that's via the Greenland Strait. Can't do it via the Bering Strait because the Kamchatka Peninsula and Russia obstructs the flow. One place. You can't do it west of Greenland because of Baffin and Ellesmere Island. So that means that warm water, several degrees warmer than present, than modern, in McDonald's words, had to have been flowing by Greenland for millennia, and it did not shed its ice. So case closed. Next question. I just, I just jumped to the broader thing about it was warmer for millennia. I feel like you're not being intellectually honest, but I'll let you get to the next question. Thank you for your response. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Mike Jones. I'm an actuary and uh, enjoy the statistical part of that. But uh, I, I think one of the ugliest words in the English language has unfortunately become green. The word green. I think it's been misused so many times and... Uh, uh, this, the, the, the issue that I don't see you commenting on, which I think is one of the key issues in this whole debate, is what the effect of humans uh, is on all of the things that happen to be, uh, that people claim are happening to the universe, and what the effect of humans is on whatever warming or unwarming we're having. And that, to me, is the key in this whole debate. Well... First of all, I make it very plain that I think that much of the second warming of the 20th century has a human component. And my colleague here, I'm going to let him respond to that after I get done. Uh, and also, uh, with regard to, to um, 
this notion that the warming has stopped, which we've heard since 1998. Uh, I showed that the people who say that uh, have not really... I, I had a computer model I built several years ago and published, and I applied it to the recent years. And in fact, the reason, largely the reason, in my opinion, in my computer model's opinion, rather, that it hasn't, we see no net warming, is because the sun has been extremely inactive uh, and because uh, the El Nino, which was a huge El Nino, a big warm thing in 1998, and, and, and we thought, Scientists are great. We, we, we follow the data rather than lead it so many times. Uh, but in 1998, when there was this huge El Nino, we, we said, oh, El Ninos have become more frequent as a result of warming. As soon as we said that, of course, we, the El Ninos pretty much went away, and we went into the cold phase uh, in the same way that as soon as we said methane would continue to increase, it started to decrease. decrease. Now, David is going to disagree with me about the anthropogenerated component, the magnitude of it, I think the audience would appreciate that. Well, I think to some extent there's there's a coupling problem with anthropogenic. There is the carbon dioxide, methane, other greenhouse gas increases, uh, and the feedback loop that incorporates uh, water vapor in the atmosphere and what that all means. I have a tendency to feel that the water vapor is estimate by the IPCC is an overestimate, that the doubling of CO2 won't be as great as a result of that, but I don't necessarily believe it'll be zero either. Um, on the other hand, I think one of the big things we've seen have been changing the land surface. As state climatologists, I'm always asked, you know, is the climate changing in Delaware? And in particular, are we seeing more floods and droughts? And the answer to both of those are yes, but it has nothing to do with climate change. It has everything to do with land surface change. You've got more people in Delaware demanding a limited resource. When that limited resource runs scarce as it does in dry years, you're going to see more demand for water. You're going to see more drought at that point and more water rationing events. On the other hand, with more people in the area, you're going to see more, more asphalt, more macadam. When it rains, it runs off faster. You're going to get a, a faster flood peak and a higher flood peak. And so, yes, flood events occur more. It's anthropogenic, but has nothing to do with changes in the climate. It has everything to do with changes in the land surface. So in that sense, I think we agree is that humans do play a key role on the climate and play a key role in changing our environment and the conditions that we've seen. I think the difference is how much of the carbon dioxide issue is the warming we've seen. Uh, I see a question right here. Chia uh, Chen, freelance correspondent. Uh, Mr. Leggett, uh, have you uh, written a book? If, if not, I suggest uh, for the mankind's uh, sake, you should write a book because everything have, anything have a several side, and uh, we need to know some. Side. And something, I want to get very basic, and to both uh, you and audience. Uh, you see, climate change is uh, come from the human behavior, and uh, industrial production and energy production. Do we have uh, uh, any data on those things? Thank you. Um, I, I'm not sure I would be the person to write a book like this. Uh, I have not written a book. I have no plans to do so. I've written a couple chapters. Most of what I do is much more technical, and I think people are more gifted on, on both sides of the aisle that write sort of things that, are, are, that, can, that can translate to the general public without dumbing down the science. I think they're much more gifted at that and I'll let them do it, and I'll try to stick to the more scientific things. I think there has been a lot of assessment between uh, changes in urbanization, changes in industrialization, those kind of figures. Some are available in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The issue is how does that change the landscape? How does that, therefore, translate back into climate models? And I know there's, there's people trying to work on that and particularly trying to forecast what human behavior is going to look like in the future is nebulous at best. But I, there, there's, there are a lot of data on it, but the question is, how do you forecast what that's likely to change in the future? And those are the kinds of things I think that almost nobody... That, that's, that is precisely the problem, and I, I touch on it in, in the book. If, if this were 1908 and I was an, a seer and you said, Dr. Michaels, what's going to happen to energy in the next 100 years? Imagine if I said this. Well, we have the periodic table worked out. It ends uranium. 
and we're going to invent a new element called plutonium, you see? And if I get this much of it and hold in this confined space for a very short period of time, the entire city I'm in blows up. It's vaporized. Or if we disperse this reaction into a large area, the entire city could be lit with electric lights, my God, everywhere, and things called refrigerators and computer. You know what that is? Oh, I have this little box in my pocket here. You can access every piece of information there is in the world instantaneously. See, when we make these 100-year projections for things going in the atmosphere, we make no, we have no idea whether that's real. And I will, I will get back to Greenland, because Greenland's one of my favorite places. In the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's model for Greenland melt, which does not include the ice falling off at all at once. It, it's, a more, it's a more uniform process, and I think we've dealt with that. It assumes that the carbon dioxide concentration of the atmosphere goes to four times its background, which is 1,100 parts per million. It started out at 280. We're sitting at about 385 to 390 right now, depending upon season. It goes to over 1,100 and stays there for 2,000 years. In other words, we will burn fossil fuel at an enormous rate for 2,000 years. Now, let's just try 1,000 years. This would be like the Roman, this, this, this would be the exact same science. The Roman Curia was very smart. They, was, or they were as smart as the people who make the computer models for Greenland. And they could have said, based upon current trends in the year 1,000, we believe that there will be 338 billion Catholics by the year 2000, and the 98% of the world will be Catholic based upon trends that we've seen. This is what happens when you project things out for 1,000 years. It's silly. Why do we base policy on projections like that? I haven't a clue.